Hi, and welcome to this episode of TLT's Employment Law Podcast. I'm Jonathan Rennie, a partner and member of TLT's UK-wide employment team. And I'm joined today by my colleague Siobhan Fitzgerald, a partner in our Bristol office. Hello there. And Fraser Vando, a solicitor in our growing Glasgow team. Hi there. This podcast is our chance to help you spot the issues that are most important or challenging to get right. And it's also an opportunity to share some useful insights and expert advice from across our team. In this episode, we're going to take a quick canter through a roundup of the latest news stories and explain how these issues are shaping the future of employment law. We're going to discuss the biggest issues we feel HR and legal teams should be prioritising in the year ahead. And today, our core focus will be on the Me Too movement and harassment in the workplace. And we'll look at the legal implications, but also how employers should deal with these issues in practice. We will also be answering some of your questions and providing quickfire responses from our team. If you'd like to send us in your own questions, please email us at emplawpodcast at tltsolicitors.com or you can tweet us using the hashtag TLTEmploymentPodcast and tagging at TLT underscore employment. We won't announce who sent us in the questions, but we'll try to answer every single one in the show. So without further ado... Let's take a look at the latest headlines. And I wonder, Fraser, what's been happening in the employment news? Thanks, Jonathan. Well, obviously, as we move towards April, there's the inevitable round of of employment law changes that tend to happen around this time of the year. Some of the most notable ones this year include the right for workers to be given an itemised payslip. That right would previously only be available to employees. Another key change is that the penalty for Aggravated breaches of employment law is going to increase from £5,000 to £20,000 in England and Wales. To be honest, the idea of of aggravated breaches isn't something that that I personally have come across too much in tribunal situations. I I don't know about either of you, but what's your view on on why that, that might be the case? I think aggravated breaches are often introduced into employment tribunal proceedings for the purposes of settlement negotiations. There's often a little bit of a tactical type approach that a claimant might take but of course aggravated breach isn't defined in the statute so we're all trying to get a little bit used to it at at the moment but as I say it's mostly a a tactical approach and hopefully an area which we get a little bit more clarification as the case law develops. Yeah I agree it's just a bit of extra pressure on the employer I think to up the settlement sum. Yeah as as well as the, the aggravated damages issue there's also the usual changes um, to the various rates and limits that apply in the employment and HR context national living wage is going to go up from £7.83 to £8.21 per hour and all the other age specific minimum wage bans are going to go up as well. If you know, you're you're listening and you're unfortunate enough to find yourself on the receiving end of an employment tribunal award for unfair dismissal the maximum compensatory award is going to increase by £3,000 And if you'd rather uh, go down the settlement agreement route rather than end up in tribunal, it's important to bear in mind that for settlement payments over £30,000, any amount over that £30,000 figure will now be subject to employer national insurance contributions. So I think I'm right in saying, Fraser, then the compensatory award is now the lower of one year salary or the statutory cap. Can you just remind us what the statutory cap is then? Yeah, the new statutory cap uh, from the 6th of April is going to be £86,444. So in the grand scheme of things, the April changes this year are fairly minor compared to the fairly significant changes that we have seen in previous years. In all likelihood, this will no doubt be because the government has had bigger issues to deal with in recent times. 
Speaking of Brexit, we're receiving a number of queries from clients as to how they should be preparing. And I think, Fraser, this is a matter where you're up to speed with the current state of play today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as, as we are recording here on the 21st of March, matters are unfortunately still quite a bit more uncertain than we'd ideally like at this stage. From a people perspective, an HR perspective, the government has been has been fairly clear about what will happen if we leave on the 29th of March with no deal. The area that we're slightly less sure of at the minute is how any delay to the process, either a delay followed by a deal or a delay followed by no deal, will impact the various you know, key dates in, in the EU settlement scheme that's going to be rolled out to to ensure individuals can safeguard their rights in, in the UK post-Brexit. So far from ideal at this late stage, but hopefully uh, in the next episode of the podcast we'll be able to provide a bit more definitive news. Excellent. Thanks for that. So we're going to look at the uh, Me Too area in a moment, but just before that, the final sort of development from, from this month. Uh, gender pay gap reporting uh, this month sees the deadline for the second round of reports. And, you know, a number of businesses have already submitted their reports, varying degrees of of, of success and narrowing the pay gap. Some of the larger organisations that have reported already have actually seen a, an increase in their in their pay gap figure. A, a number of theories behind this, uh, one of them being that in order to address uh, gender imbalance in the workforce. More females have been recruited into junior roles and because of the lower salaries, this has you know, perhaps skewed the figures slightly. In various statistics and various analysis of the figures submitted so far, and the good news is that the gap in general appears to be narrowing, albeit maybe not as quick as we would like. Um, Siobhan, how are you finding our clients are dealing with the gender pay gap reporting process? So thanks, Fraser. Yeah, I think the first year of reporting has revealed there's plenty of work for organisations to do in narrowing the pay gap and addressing the imbalance that's in place. So if you look at the statistics from the ONS, which is the Office of National Statistics, they've recorded the average pay gap uh, for employees last year is 17.9%. So, I mean, that's obviously the headline figure, but if you drill down into it, it's actually very interesting. So millennials appear to be leading the charge and the pay gap's actually very small for those who are under 40. Um, so if you particularly look at the 30 to 39 age range, the, the gender pay gap is virtually negligible. But then if you look for older people, that changes. So the 50 to 59 age group where women earn up to 15.5% less than men. So what we want to ensure is that as those millennials move through the career ladder, that they bring that very low gender pay gap with them. So I think preparations for reporting are ramping up, obviously. Um, And as Fraser said, we're recording on the 21st of March. And if you look last year, the over half of employers reported in the week coming up to the 4th of April, which is the reporting date. Um, So we're expecting quite a lot of last minute reports. I mean, one of the big problems with this is that change is going to take time and the reporting is always looking backwards, you know, up to a year. So if you think the 5th of April this year, which will be the the snapshot date for when employers have to take data, that will be the report for next year, so i.e. for 2020. So, you know, this sometimes can feel a bit frustrating with figures not changing quick but it's not a reason not to do it. And 
You know, as Fraser, as you mentioned, um, there's there's a number of employers who are in the unfortunate position of their gender pay gap having gone backwards. Um, you know, Ofsted, the education watchdog, is one of those who's reported already. And last year, their their median hourly pay gap was 2.3%, which is obviously pretty good. This year, it's gone up to 19.8%. So, you know, certainly businesses on the smaller side could find that if they just had a number, maybe a couple of female employees at the senior end who left, for example, probably for very legitimate reasons, but that will affect their statistics. Yeah, and I think it's probably important in that respect. The narrative that goes along with that reporting is going to be quite important because, you know, obviously 2 to 19% doesn't look doesn't look brilliant, but if you can explain it in that way, then presumably that will yeah. you know, take the heat off any adverse of criticism that, yeah. that could come their way. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen um, some sectors such as construction and infrastructure companies engaging in positive recruitment exercises in the last year, particularly on social media, looking at uh, female graduate recruitment into into engineering and uh, promoting these issues with the obvious intention of getting more females into these type of roles and endeavouring to reduce the gender pay gap. So there are some companies that are very visible in this that are doing initiatives throughout the course of the year and there are others that seem to just simply be doing the reporting and I guess over time companies will need to do more than just reporting to demonstrate actually how they're trying to reduce the gap. Yeah, and I suppose that begs the question of how effective the current regulations actually are. You know, there's, there's currently no sanction for, for not reporting. It's purely reputational risk, essentially. How do you see that developing as we move forward and, and hopefully as as the, the pay gap starts to, to get narrower across across all sectors? Yeah, I mean, I think last year the Equality and Human Rights Commission decided that they were going to take action against those who A, hadn't reported when they should have done or B, companies that had produced statistics that were just sort of very improbable or very unlikely. I think some people had gone in and just put zeros against everything, you know, yeah. just to generate a report rather than, um, you know, actually genuinely running the statistics. But the Equality and Human Rights Commission has come under a bit of criticism because they haven't really done anything so they've looked into this they've written letters to employers but they haven't issued any fines you know and there's there's a bit of criticism around about the fact that it really just doesn't have teeth but I I mean my feeling is that for employers in practice you've really got to comply because a reputational damage in your sector if you don't and b i think there'll be increasing pressure from employees themselves if you were an employer who wasn't going to produce the stats yeah i think if we're looking at the gender pay gap and we're talking about that being a snapshot of current employees you will have people that are going through recruitment processes at the time and some of them will look at that gender pay gap and will actually challenge employers even at the recruitment stage as to why there is such a gap and, and what they're doing to, to change it. So if we're talking about millennials, for example, it seems that they have a real f focus on this and that may of itself drive change, um, particularly where there's a war on talent and the best people who have many job opportunities might actually differentiate based on the gender pay gap. So something that organisations need to be very focused on if they want to recruit and retain the best people. Of course, the news has been absolutely dominated in recent times with the Me Too movement and the implications that that has for workplace cultures, policies, procedures, how people feel about their work and also obviously the legal and the reputational risks that can arise when things go wrong. 
we're talking specifically about sexual harassment. We've seen this in the retail sector, particularly coming under scrutiny in the wake of the founder of Ted Baker stepping down after various cuddling allegations. And Sir Philip Green's retail empire has been threatened with various lurid allegations around his personal conduct. This is not a sector-specific issue, though. It is one that's impacting many organisations across the world. Aside from the personal impact these harassment allegations will have on the particularly affected employees, obviously other stakeholders and shareholders are going to be negatively impacted as well. The issue of sex harassment has an increased focus in corporate governance and compliance, and I suspect the movement is leading to a more proactive approach to these matters rather than a reactive one. I wonder, if Siobhan, if you could tell us a little bit about the legal protections in the Equality Act that protect against sex discrimination and harassment in the workplace. Yeah, no problem. So, obviously, the main form of sex discrimination that's relevant in the Me Too sense is going to be sexual harassment. So, our listeners are going to be familiar with the legal definition of harassment, which is there's got to be unwanted conduct, which is related to sex, that has the purpose or effect of violating the person's dignity or creating an intimidating, hostile environment for them. I mean, it's important to remember that the circumstances of the case are relevant and the tribunal would also have to take a view as to whether it's reasonable for the conduct to have that effect. Yeah, I think as lawyers we have a tendency often to default into that language of saying cases are fact-specific or complex, but in this area you're going to have an emotional dimension here and an emotional impact. And that can sometimes be very difficult to determine or analyse in an investigation, but it's something that we have to be very mindful of. I tend to find whether there is that emotional impact that um, there can be an assessment or a judgment made that why did a person react in a particular way? And we all have a sense of these matters, but in engaging in investigation, we really have to meticulously analyse and assess the individual person's response to these claims. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that the evidence is often quite he said, she said. So it comes down to who's going to be believed and who's going to be a more credible witness. And, you know, that can be the case for the investigator looking at it, but also for the employment tribunal. So, you know, if this case gets all the way to tribunal, someone, you know, you're going to be sitting in the witness stand with the panel in front of you and you have to persuade them that, you know, one side of the evidence is right or the other and I think that's why um, sometimes there can be an increased risk going to tribunal because you don't quite know who the tribunal panel is going to believe. Definitely. I mean I think one of the things to think about here is the fact that in a straight unfair dismissal claim there is simply a judge who is determining the case whereas in a discrimination case including sexual harassment cases there's going to be a judge and two lay members and so you can find yourself in a situation where the legal interpretation might be lending itself to one finding, whereas the lay members may look at it in a different perspective. Yes, that's right. And the, obviously the two lay members can outvote the judge. So in theory, you know, that the, they could make the finding that meant the claim was successful. So I certainly remember the days when we were looking at discrimination cases at work and it used to be said that discrimination was a bit of a smoking gun issue, meaning that there was often a lack of evidence. And as you say, Siobhan, more of a sort of he said, she said, mm. or she said, he said, whichever way around it, it, it would be. But do you find in your day to day work that social media is having more of an impact in uh, discrimination cases? Yeah, I think it definitely is. Uh, I mean, I've dealt with cases fairly recently where you know, someone complained about sexual harassment and turned up with 100, 150 pages of Facebook messages, 
It wouldn't be the first time we've seen WhatsApp conversations produced as part of investigation processes. So from that stage, there's obviously still the argument to be had about whether the conduct meets the definition in the Equality Act about sexual harassment. But from an evidential perspective, it certainly tends to shed a bit more light on you know, the nuances of, of what went on and, and takes it away from being a, a he said, she said type situation if it's if it's down there in writing. Yes, it can always be quite surprising what people are prepared to put in writing and, you know, then maybe they don't automatically think that something you quickly type into your phone could be used as evidence in the employment tribunal, you know, which of course it can. I mean, I, I think that one of the tricky areas in harassment cases as well is the extent to which someone can be legally harassed if they have also engaged in some sort of like so-called banter, you know, with with the other party. Um, and you might have heard about this. There's been a very recent case on this in 2018. Um, it, was, it wasn't actually sex discrimination. It was race and disability harassment that was alleged. But um, the tribunal was entitled to find that calling the claimant a fat ginger pikey was not harassment in those circumstances because the individual had been was deemed to have been an active participant in the banter culture um, and therefore it wasn't reasonable that the, the, the comments that were made to him were truly harassing because he was very much engaged in the whole thing and you know I think that comes up quite regularly with our clients a concern well okay yes some some you know arguably inappropriate comments have been made but the person has sort of been giving as good as they get so to speak um, and I think that it is easier to make to run that banter defence when you have people at the same level in an organisation. I think it is more difficult where you have a senior person and a junior person because often the junior person can perhaps join in a little bit because they're fearful of losing their job or the, or the repercussions they might have for them in the workplace. But uh, So I think it's a bit more tricky to make out in those situations. Yeah, I've always found that when we're looking at that Equality Act term of unwanted conduct, that it can be a tricky matter and looked at from different viewpoints, I suppose. So I particularly remember the Munchkins restaurant case, which neatly outlined the scenario where female staff put up with abusive behaviour for a variety of reasons, and even at times participated in those type of conversations as a form of coping mechanism. But the tribunal found that that does not of itself make the behaviour wanted, um, so that's the kind of issue or the tension that we're faced with when we look at that particular Equality Act term. I wonder then, is that sufficient for an employer to simply accept that position? Yeah, well, I mean, it's tricky, but I, I think, you know, employment lawyers and HR professionals you know, probably have to just treat the complaint seriously. And, yeah. you know, if the person is saying it's unwanted conduct, I think that is your starting point. Um and, you know, I think it's also important to remember that this harassment or these harassment issues are not exclusive to female employees. So there's obviously been male employees who've raised complaints yeah. against, you know, f female managers or, or colleagues as well. Yeah, it's been interesting following the Me Too movement and the fact that um, there now is an, an equivalent male campaign, if you like, um, drawing attention to that because of course yep. uh, we all have protected characteristics and the nature of the Equality Act is that it doesn't favour um, females over males when it comes to this particular point. In fact I saw recently in the last few weeks that there's been a group of white male advertising executives who have accused their agency of discrimination after being made redundant amid what they described as a diversity drive mm -hmm. and that's the JWT Thompson case in, in London where the male people that have been made redundant say that a female boss vowed to challenge its boys' club culture. 
So there is a, a is a, a rebalancing, if you like, in mm. the discussions around Me Too, or certainly there are scenarios where men are raising these issues uh, as well. Do you have a view, Siobhan, as to whether other such male cases may be in the pipeline? I mean, I, I expect there will be others similar to this. And, you know, men are protected by the Equality Act just, just as equally as women. And I think organisations need to be mindful of that. So when you're addressing compliance and you're looking at training, you know, you need to make sure that you're not solely focusing on it being all one way. Um, you know, in that case that you mentioned, is quite a salient reminder that employers must be careful not to go too far the other way. Yeah, and I guess in this field, we also sometimes hear about um, subconscious bias or subconscious discrimination. And I guess, therefore, there might be a subconscious tendency to (laughs) assume that this is an area where men are harassing women without realising the potential for it to happen the the other way around. So um, a a lot to discuss in in this area and some very interesting uh, online resources that we can look at. And obviously TLT has uh, publications particularly focused in this area. Yeah, and I think part of the problem as well, or I say problem, part of the reason why there are probably less male claims, particularly in the the sexual harassment area, is that for a long time people have probably thought that, you know, the traditional view is that men wouldn't speak up if they were being harassed, Mm. you know, in that way. You know, the idea would be that, you know, just carry on through, and there's been a lot in the press recently about, you know, speaking out about issues like that, And, and I think that probably is a factor as to as to why, you know, there maybe hasn't been more male cases before now. Yes. Just taking a step back a second and looking at it more broadly, obviously under the Equality Act, anything done by an employee in the course of their employment is also treated as having been done by the employer as well. And, you know, a lot of these cases, what you tend to find is one individual acting in, you know, in an inappropriate manner. They've taken it upon themselves to do that. And obviously that liability could could be imported on onto the the business. So from that perspective, Siobhan, is there anything that you know businesses can do to sort of disassociate themselves from being legally responsible for that type of conduct? Yeah, I mean, I think as you mentioned, organisations and employers are generally what's called vicariously liable for the acts of their employees when they're committed in the course of employment. Um, but and you know obviously if this this harassment is going on within a work context that will probably be in the course of employment but there is a defence that an employer can run in an employment tribunal claim under the Equality Act to say that they have ca- carried out all reasonable steps to prevent such harassment taking place and if you can convince a tribunal that you have done that you have a chance of being able to sort of almost step away from your employee and and say that you're not liable in those circumstances yeah i've always thought with that 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 might be an easier defense to run for a smaller organization maybe an owner managed business where there's a small number of staff and they can show training as compared to maybe a large financial institution where we know that training might be by webinar, or it might be by Skype or whatever. whatever. So yeah. I think for smaller organisations, the reasonable step statute defence is one that might have greater prospects of success. But you wouldn't want to be relying upon that defence. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a high bar. There's no doubt, you know, you would have to be doing very regular training. It's not enough that sometime once, you know, in 1993 that someone was given some 
training on the Equality Act. So, you know, I think that it's it's something you'd have to be showing a very sort of regular training programme with quite in-depth training, you know, p- perhaps um, sort of tailored to individuals' roles. Uh, but it certainly is something that employers could seek to rely on. And I suppose the other thing to mention, actually, for discrimination cases is that an individual can bring a claim not only against the employer, but also against an individual directly. Um, and that's often a tactic used by claimant solicitors. So it can, So let's say, for example, it was the managing director that was uh, alleged to have done the harassing. Then if that claim's brought against him personally, that increases the embarrassment effect and the potential reputational damage and, you know, probably personal concerns that he might have about that that sort of coming out and you know that can increase pressure to settle a case yeah i think so i mean i think the, the difficulty when faced with one of those claims is that if the business and a named individual within the business are are both listed on the claim form this the defense that you would run for the business may not necessarily be great for the individual involved and then you can end up with Within fighting, and you know, from a claimant's perspective, that's exactly exactly what the claimant would want. I think, in reality, the all reasonable steps defence is such a high bar because of because of the word all. I mean, if it was reasonable steps, you know, there can be arguments about what was and what was not reasonable. But if you're looking at all reasonable steps, then that just takes that bar a little bit higher. I mean, looking further afield, you know, the New York. State they've they've recently introduced a law that effectively says, you know, employees must receive annual anti-harassment training. They must be given written, you know, discrimination policies that can either be in the form of a model policy that the state's produced, or it can be, you know, an employer-specific policy if you know that goes higher than certain minimum standards. So, from that perspective, Siobhan, firstly, can you see the UK? legislation adopting that approach and secondly even if not is that something that that particularly larger businesses should be doing anyway to try and make sure they benefit from that all reasonable steps defense yeah, I mean, you know, the I think the US is seeking to be quite progressive in this area and deal with these issues and you know by bringing in law to require the training is is going further than the UK is doing at the moment, but um you know it, it may well be something that could come into force here. I think that it is just a no-brainer. I think organizations have just got to do the the training. Um you know, even if you, it wasn't the law, it is the right thing to do and you need to you need to help and support your employees to know, you know, what the boundaries are. Are, you know what is acceptable banter or otherwise in the workplace so I think almost you've got a duty of care as an employer you know set aside an employment tribunal defense but you know you need to help people to understand how they can make sure that they're compliant and don't sort of inadvertently get themselves into any difficulties yeah absolutely like with all these things there's the financial aspect to it as well but from a general sort of conscience and, and well-being perspective that then absolutely that's something that that employers should be looking at. I mean, one of the other things that, that appears to be coming across from the US into the UK is this idea of, you know, love contracts or, or relationship at work policies, effectively, where individuals, if they are having a, a relationship with a colleague, but particularly a more senior colleague, different levels of seniority, need to disclose the fact of that relationship, need to also disclose if that has has ended and and there can be some fairly significant consequences for not doing so. I've had a few clients talk to me about relationship at work policies. I I think it it can make sense, particularly at different levels of 
of seniority. But the impression I'm getting is that that's not yet the norm in the UK. I, I don't know if either of you have a view on that, but it, it doesn't strike me as something that, that's particularly prevalent now. But, but I suppose there's no reason why it couldn't be in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think clients are increasingly looking at this as something that they might introduce. I think there are some tensions because, you know, everyone has the right to a private life and you don't want an employer to be too paternalistic and involved with that. But I think employers in the UK are worried about the reputational issues and therefore this is something, particularly where there's a senior person and a junior person in a relationship where they are going to be a bit keener on disclosure of that than they would have otherwise been. Yeah, certainly I find it's a difficult policy to draft because when do you put that onus on a staff member to say, well, there is a relationship? Mm. Um, is yeah. it that yes. if, if, yeah. you go, if you go out for dinner <laughs> or is it if you go away on holiday together, which could have an Im- impact on the business and no mm. doubt it creates those slightly um, awkward uh, co- conversations, which would obviously become more awkward if the relationship um, broke up for whatever reason. So from a legal point of view, they're, they're, they're quite tricky to draft. But I suppose it's an example of managing organisational risk uh, and legal risk. So um, I suppose it's the very term love contract, which is very US specific. And as Fraser says, perhaps clients don't phone us up and ask for love contracts, but they do ask for <laughs> no, some, de- some guidance on relationship type contracts. There's definitely no one that's used the term love contract. But I, I think the idea as well, we're talking about duty of care. I suppose that's part of the all reasonable steps position as well. If you know there is a relationship going on between a senior employee and a more junior employee, it does seem a bit odd putting that in writing, but when you take a step back and think about it, you can argue that's part of a duty of care perspective to know it's a consensual relationship. Both parties are, are, are you know, happy with that that arrangement. You will then later know if yeah. that arrangement is is broken down, and if that type of conduct continues, then that that may be something that employers feel duty bound to to investigate or take a further look into. So as well as that type of query, I suppose one of the main talking points about the Me Too movement has been the use of non-disclosure agreements or NDAs, which have been variously described in the press, I suppose, as gagging agreements, silencing provisions, and which have clearly received an enormous amount of media scrutiny and indeed parliamentary consultation on whether these type of clauses should be allowed. Siobhan, could you take us quickly through a run through of what exactly is an NDA? Yes, you hear this phrase sort of NDA bandied around a lot. I mean, I think for employment lawyers and HR professionals, really what we mean when we're talking about NDAs in this context is a settlement agreement, sort of settling someone's claims that they could bring that contains a confidentiality clause and, you know, that a confidentiality clause that prevents them from sort of talking about these circumstances of their harassment. And, you know, that's why they've got a lot of bad press because, you know, it prevents someone, you know, telling other people what's happened to them and also, I suppose, potentially allows the alleged harasser to, you know, stay in the business and potentially the same thing could happen again. And... as you say, you know, this is something that the government's been looking at carefully and the Women and Equalities Commission has been conducting an inquiry which is ongoing at the moment as to the regulation or potential regulation of NDA agreements and you know, even the extent to which they should be allowed at all um, in sexual harassment cases. You know, I think that uh, certainly the CIPD submitted a, a report to the Women and Equalities Commission saying that they felt it was still important to have settlement agreements and some level of confidentiality. But 
I think probably what most people agree is that this shouldn't prevent whistleblowing. It shouldn't prevent somebody being able to go to the authorities or take part in, in an investigation that might be being conducted by the authorities around the harassment. So I think that's very much watch this space and hopefully something that we could report back on in, in future podcasts. Sure. I always find it interesting when I talk about settlement agreements because when this is portrayed in the media, it sometimes comes across that a settlement agreement is an unusual or an yeah. exceptional document. And the reality for me is always that in the UK at any one time, there are presumably tens of thousands of settlement agreements and we have the protected conversation regime which enables employers and employees to have these type of discussions. And yes. I think maybe in the media reporting it comes across as if you know this is a unique um, exceptional document that's used as I say to gag or to, to silence people when in actual fact it's fairly commonplace so it'll be interesting to see how the parliamentary commission re- responds on legislation in this area if, if at all Well, as you know, we'll be doing regular listener questions, but as this is our first episode, we've got a couple of questions that we've been asked by clients, and they're the type of questions we get asked on a very regular basis, and they're quite practically focused, so I thought I would open them up for discussion. Firstly, Siobhan, I wonder what do you think the top tips are for an employer faced with an employee claiming sexual harassment? Okay, well, I think there's probably in my mind sort of three key things, and, you know, it's 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 not rocket science, but... Um, Firstly, I think we need to take it seriously. So no matter how senior the alleged harasser is, you know, this is something that needs to be dealt with, you know, under your policies and procedures, but needs to be a serious matter. I mean, secondly, you need to investigate it quickly and thoroughly. Um, Often it can be useful, especially if the alleged harasser is very senior in the organisation to use an independent organisation to investigate it and you know there are are, are lots out there who can do a very good job because it's quite difficult for someone internal to you know be making uh, findings that are perhaps you know not in favour of of one of their uh, so maybe someone they report to or or someone more senior within the organisation that can be quite difficult and then I think finally just to be brave and take decisive action Um, you know we're increasingly seeing situations where very senior people in organisations are being dismissed or or are asked to leave because their behaviour isn't in line with what's required in that in that employer's business. I mean, reputationally, it's just going to become ever more important to to not try and sweep these things under the carpet. And I think also it sends a very powerful message to the rest of the organisation if actually a company is prepared to challenge senior people and call them out on behaviour which is unacceptable. I'm sure that that affects the behaviour then of of others within the organisation. Great. And um, Fraser, I wonder what your thoughts are about practical steps. What do you think employers should be doing when they're faced with a sex harassment claim? One thing that, that I'm seeing a lot more of is that individuals are now trying to take steps to record meetings, be it investigation meetings, disciplinary hearings, appeals, you know, the whole range. They can ask to record it. They're, they're trying to do so covertly. And with smartphone technology now, even covert recordings come out, you know, with, with generally very clear voice clarity. So what, what I'm seeing and, and what I think would be worthwhile is you know, no phones policies in meetings, phones off, phones on the table, because, you know, you're, you're working off the notes, you're working off, the, you know, the note taker in these meetings is there for a reason. So, you know, unless unless an employer is, is happy to record those meetings, I certainly think a no phones policy um, would be worthwhile. And secondly, 
I think a general health check of employee handbooks, various policies would, would definitely be worth a look. Particularly, you know, we were speaking earlier about social media and the impact of social media and how that can often, often you know, be where these types of cases start, ensuring that your equality policy your various suite of equality policies depending on how you how you structure it sits in neatly with your social media policy so that everyone knows um, exactly you know where the lines are and what they should and should not be doing. I think this is a very small window into the sorts of things we've been hearing about recently and, and captures the challenges that employers are facing today. There's some very high profile cases and they're very much changing the way businesses operate and how people are expected to behave. We'll obviously let you know as and when there are any legal updates in this area, both through our podcast and our monthly updates, which you can subscribe to via our website at tltsolicitors.com. We hope you've enjoyed today, found it useful, and we would really appreciate your feedback. So please take a moment to review and to share our podcast. It will mean that more people can take a listen. You can also subscribe to our podcast via the podcast app so that you don't miss any future episodes. And of course, don't forget to send us in your questions by emailing us at emplawpodcast at tltsolicitors.com or you can tweet us by using the hashtag tltemploymentpodcast and tagging at tlt underscore employment. See you next time. The information in this podcast is for general guidance only and represents our understanding of the relevant law and practice at the time of recording. We recommend you seek specific advice for specific cases. Please visit our website for our full terms and conditions.